Amen. You guys can grab a seat. So just a couple disclaimers around everything that's about to happen over the next 30 minutes to two hours. Um, If you have a Bible in front of you, you can open to Romans 11, but we're going to be all over the map, literally. I mean, it's going to be, yeah, you're going to be flipping a lot. If anybody can make it to all the scriptures that I referenced this morning, you win a prize. Just go talk to Kyle and he'll give you some kind of prize, because we're going to be all over the map. The other part... um, is that even though we're flipping to Romans 11, it's going to be about an hour before we get there. So flip there and then just get comfortable and hang out. We'll, we'll catch up soon. The last disclaimer is uh, last night or this weekend I was speaking at a youth retreat in Dyersburg, Tennessee, which at the time when I agreed to do this a year ago, uh, it just, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll speak there. It'll be great. It's for a friend. Uh, didn't really realize that Dyersburg is like right next to uh, Arkansas and Missouri. Um, and so finished last night about 9.30, hopped in the car, um, got to my house at about 4.30 this morning, slept for a couple hours, and here I am. So um, just big asterisk disclaimer, I'm not responsible for anything that comes out of my mouth this morning. If it's good, I am. If it's not, blame it on the lack of sleep. Are we good? Yes? Yes? Okay. Uh, so over the next four weeks, here's where we're trying to go. Um, the question I get all the time when people find out I'm a pastor is like, tell me about your church. Um, what does your church mean? What does your church do? Tell me about your church. Because everyone, especially in the South, has some kind of experience with church. And so as we're gearing up, um, we'll have this Sunday and next Sunday. Then the 20th, a lot of college students will start trickling in. We're going to do a lot of different things like move in, uh, like all these different events to try to meet students. So the 27th um, might be a little cray-cray in here uh, because we're going to have a bunch of students coming back. That's why we're here. That's why we chose Dahlonega was not only families but the college students as well. And so what we're trying to do, and we'll probably do about every August, is stop to try to explain what is the church. Because yet last night I was speaking at a church that was uh, 150 years old, had all the big organs and all that. It was, it was pretty awesome. So a lot of us have grown up in that environment, like that, that must be the church. Uh, but what I'm finding more and more is that people uh, hate the church. When they find out I'm a pastor of the church, they just want nothing to do. The distance comes. And a lot of the reason is they, at some point in their life, they've just been burnt by it. Um, that thing's just making me paranoid, so I'm going to move it. Uh, they've been burnt by the church. They've been frustrated by the church. Uh, something has happened, some events. And as I'm listening to these stories, 99% of them are fully justified. Like, yeah, if that happened to me at the church, I would be really frustrated too. I would be hurt by that as well. And I know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've been on church staff. And so it, it just, ministry is messy. You've got broken people trying to lead broken people. And it gets really messy really fast. So what we're going to try to do over the next four weeks is hit the big C church. What is the church globally? What does that mean? What does that look like? Uh, But then make it down to a micro level. What does that mean for us here in Dahlonega and in every major college town in the state of Georgia? Which we'll get there. But here's the interesting thing. Um, If you guys are nerds like me, you should totally pick up the Burke Total Church uh, by Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. Because what this is, and this is it's just fascinating, these guys are pastors in Europe writing back to pastors in America and saying, if you don't think that what's happening over here is coming to America in the next 10 to 15 years, you're fools. 
You need to recognize that America has always been culturally, economical, everything. We've always trailed behind Europe 10, 15, 20, 30 years. That's just how we operate. And if you poll an average college student in Europe, in the UK, when, tell me when, just one time, tell me when you would go into a church building. They don't have an answer. They're, they're not for a wedding, not for a funeral. I mean, shoot, when I worked at Gainesville, the high school graduation was inside of a church building. No, there's not a single time that a college student in the UK can think of any time I would ever venture into a church building. And the statistics just go from there. Barna talks about only 2 in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending church is important or worthwhile. Only 2 in 10 under 30, which I just turned 30 this year, so this is, these are my people. Only 2 in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending church is important or worthwhile. That is an all-time low. 59% of millennials raised in church have dropped out. And that statistic, is I've seen that all over the map, all the way up to 80%. 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance, believing the church does more harm than good. And you can see this. Anyone part of Say What You Want, Dahlonega? You should. It's great. Like just cancel cable and just read those things. It's the, 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 the geniusness that comes up on that Facebook page is, is glorious. But here's what you'll see every now and then. When the economy gets brought up, there's always this tribe of people. that Their go-to line is, tax the churches. Like that's going to solve everything if we would just tax the churches. But that's part of that 35%. That's part of this, the church is no good. I mean, they're almost comparing us to the crusade, that we're just, the church is that bad, it's that awful. But one of my, as I'm growing into ministry, one of my heroes is a guy named C.H., or Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. And here's what he said about the church. I think it's going to be up here, because this is, this is just beautiful. He said this in 1891. Dude had a preaching school, sidebar, had a preaching school, that he would measure your chest to see if you could get into his preaching school. Because they had, obviously, 1890s, they had no microphones, no way to make your voice louder. So unless you had a barrel chest with a lung capacity to preach to upwards of 10,000 people, is what Spurgeon preached to, you couldn't get into his preaching school. Kyle, I'm sorry. You would have been failed. You would not have gotten in. You're a great communicator, not for Spurgeon. And not for 10,000. It's just fascinating. Another thing, anyways... Dude wrestled with depression his entire life. So we just look at depression like that's, oh, you can't talk about that. Here's, they called him the prince of preachers. You know what people call me? I can't say it on the stage. I can't. So, but him, prince of preachers, wrestled with depression his entire life. Here's what he said about the church. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I found one that was perfect, I would never have joined at all. In the moment that I did join, if I had found one that was perfect, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Ooh. Still imperfect as it is, it's the dearest place on earth. All who first give themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? 
It is the right of, for anyone to refrain from membership in the church. It is the right for everyone, and then the testimony of God would be lost to the world. As I've said already, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for you not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, that they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is a fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. I love that quote from Spurgeon. Here's the crazy thing about Spurgeon. He wrote all of his sermons the night before. So this isn't something that, like, it would take me two years to write something that eloquent. He just thought about it. It's rumored that Spurgeon had photographic memory, had eight thoughts in his mind while he was communicating, and could pick the best one and just preach it. That's crazy. I, I don't know how, anyways, I love this. Here's just one thing that I, if I could put an asterisk next to, he used the phrase, and we have to keep this in context of what he's saying, the dearest place on earth. Because we almost titled this, we, we've picked We Are the Church as the series for the next couple weeks. We almost picked the dearest place on earth. But we knew what we were going to come into was the stigma that we already have about the church. The church is a building. The church is somewhere you go to. That's not what Spurgeon intended. But if you walk in and it said, Ricky made this awesome graphic, instead of saying we are the church, it said the dearest place on earth. Then it just furthers that stereotype that the church is a place. It's somewhere you go. It's something, but it's not something you do. It's not something that you are. So when we start to define church biblically, we've got to look at it because it's funny. Every time they use the word church in the Bible, never once is it ever referred to a building. Ever. They've got a separate word for that. In Acts, they'll use the word tabernacle to reference the building. But the church, the ecclesia, it literally means those who are called out. The called out ones coming together. So those that Christ has called out coming together, ecclesia, the church. That is what the church is. So one of the first things that we have to stop and one of the narratives that we have to just kind of re or tear down in our minds and begin to rebuild is the church isn't something you go to. The church is who you are. And I wasn't trying to be a smart aleck. I can be a really big smart aleck. Like, but just real quick, there's a guy last night, one of the leaders at the camp I was at, had a tattoo right here. Uh, and it was pretty cool. So I asked him what it was. He said, it is finished in Hebrew. And he just kind of looked at me like, you don't know what that is, man? Like, I know you're in seminary. I said, oh, that's, that's an interesting choice. Hebrew. Where did you come up with that? He's like, well, you know, it's, it's in the Bible. I said, oh, okay. I just, Jesus said that in Aramaic. But that's cool. If you want to do Hebrew, that, that's fine. Actually, the rest of the New Testament was written in Greek, but, but I love Hebrew. Where'd you get that idea? Like, just, bro, don't, don't be condescending to me because I'll throw it right back. So I can be a smart aleck. I know it. I probably need to call that guy and say, I apologize. It's a cool tattoo. It's just permanent in the wrong language, but it's cool. It's fine. Stay with it. So when I used, when we first came up here, I was so passionate, still passionate about the church. When people would say, where does your church gather? Where, where is your church I'd say, well, you know, we've got some over at Mill Creek. Uh, we've got some that live downtown. We've got some that live up on the north end of town. We've got some in Dawsonville. And people just kind of look at me like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, well, the church isn't a building. It isn't a place. The church is people. 
So we've got some people that live in Mill Creek. We've got a guy that lives in Pink Williams. He's not a drug dealer. He just lives over there. Some in Dawsonville. So like, that's just where we are. And trying to intentionally to break that paradigm, but what I think I got labeled as was a smart aleck. Um, maybe some people was a stronger term. But what we have to start to break down this paradigm, especially if we've grown up in the South, is the church is a building, the church is a place. And I've talked about this before. Um, that's why we're really careful about the language that we say here. This is a, the, the gathering of the church, but, but we are the church. This is a rented facility. This is the Parks and Rec. There's going to be old dudes playing pickleball right here tomorrow at 5 o'clock. You should come watch them. They're super competitive. It's awesome. This isn't anything special here. This is all of this after we're done, we'll go into a 12 or 14 foot trailer and go sit in a parking lot for a week. There's nothing special. Almost all of this is borrowed materials that other churches have given us to do this. This is not a church. We are the church. And that mind shift is subtle and the word shift might be semantic, but the heart shift behind it drastically changes everything. Then you start to take some ownership of what you're doing and who you are and where you're plugged into. If church is somewhere you go, then I'm thinking I go to a Braves game and I don't feel bad about leaving trash under the seat because someone gets paid to pick it up. But if I'm part of the Braves, which would have been awesome, I'm going to take more ownership in that experience. So the church isn't somewhere we go. The church is who we are. So Acts 2, this is probably one of the earliest descriptions of what the church started to form. I'm just going to read it quick, real quick. You don't have to flip there. And the funny thing is, and, and my, I even kind of do this, there's some, there's some extra uh, weird circumstances going on in this passage that they literally thought that Jesus was coming back any day. Like, not, yeah, we know Jesus is coming back any day, but they literally thought, like, within the next week, Jesus is coming back. So a lot of people will take this passage and go, well, that's not an accurate description of what the church is because they literally thought Jesus was coming back that week. Like, but, but shouldn't we live that way? Like, shouldn't we live like the fact that Jesus might come back right now? Jesus come back now? That would be cool. Acts 2, ready? 42. And they voted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, big distinction, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this is one of the earliest descriptions we have of the church. Now, if we could just be real honest and be real with one another, if we put that next to the church in America, how similar is that? If we were to just lay those two next to each other on paper, how similar is that experience in Acts versus what we experience as a church today? And we devoted ourselves to one hour on Sunday morning as long as the preacher was good. And as long as my coffee was hot when I was served there, we went. And we go home throughout the week and we do nothing. And the Lord added no one to their numbers because no one was being saved. 
Is that maybe a more fair description of the church in America? I might be a little tired and a little mean, but we've just got to be honest. That's, that is the church, and I'm not picking on any individual church. That's the big C church. That's the problem that we have. So when we start to define the church, one of the first things we have to define is who is the head of the church. Now, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this. I promise you, this is how it's going to go. You're going to look at me, and then you're going to look at the Bible. You're going to look at me, look at the Bible, look at me, look at the Bible, look at me, and then we'll pray, and we'll be out of here. Deal? There's going to be a lot of Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, which is Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. The church. Let me say that one more time. He is the head of the body, the church. Christ is it. Christ is the lead pastor. Christ is the one that runs this thing, not just here, but globally. Uh, you probably you might not know this, but we're kind of affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. People ask if we're like Baptists, say, yeah, we're just not really good at it. That's just kind of where we land. Um, we're, we're Baptists in theology, but like we're just not very good at it. But here's one of the things I do love about the Southern Baptist Convention is the autonomy of every church. They give church freedom to run and operate the way think, that they think God is asking them to lead. Why? Because they understand this principle that Christ is the head of the church. So there's no aristocracy. There's no hierarchy. There's no org chart going on like there might be in other religions and other denominations. Christ is the head of the church. So yeah, I might be up here talking and we're almost done forming our elder teams and the elders might lead this church, but never once do we think that we are the end all be all for this church. And if we do, would you please dismiss us as elders? If this thing is ever about me, I give you full permission, not in front of my kids, be classy, but to drive me in the parking lot and beat the tar out of me and get somebody else. I, I don't want to see Grady watch, yeah. Yeah, that's just, that just wouldn't be good for his psyche, I don't think. I want that, though. I'm, I'm not just talking air. Talking air, I guess I am talking air. I'm not just talking hot air. I want Christ to be the head of this thing. One of the prayers that we've always prayed from the very beginning, if Jesus, if you're not in this thing, then let it fail. We don't want to do this. Francis Chan, um, who's a pastor and out in San Francisco now, had this very convicting thought as a pastor that led him away. He resigned from his church. And here's his thought. If Jesus had a church next door, mine would be bigger. That if Jesus were to come back today and he had a church and he started a church next door to Cornerstone in Simi Valley, California, that Francis Chan's church would be bigger because of what they do and what they offer. And that thought drove him to quitting the church. So Christ is the head of this thing, and if he's not in it, then our prayer is still let it fail. I don't want to build a show. I don't want to build a thing if Christ is not in this. Christ is the head of the church. And there's something else we have to see, because as you're probably picking up, I'm, I'm really passionate about the church. And I've been different parts of different ministries and organizations and, and parachurches as I've been growing up. Uh, but here's why I think I'm most passionate about the church. And this is going to be a weird language. Try to get the big picture here. Don't, don't get stuck in the weeds. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Oh, I didn't think that you were going to be going there. I'm not, not right now. We will later, but 
That's for another day. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ so that wives also submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So so here's where it's going. Because there's so much depth in this. If we could just take a break from wives submit to your husbands in that whole battle. And I know there's some wives looking over to your husband going, not today. We're not having that conversation today. I get it. We'll, we'll talk later. In this day, here's what would happen. When, when a proposal would take place, when there was a proposal, the, the wife or the husband would have to go to the father of the bride, pay different salaries and different fees and goats and donkeys and whatever to earn the right to even ask for marriage. If that were to take place, the groom would go away, go to his father's house, and would add on an addition to his father's house. So they're living together, not living together, they're living in the same town, big clarifying point, living in the same town, husband goes away to prepare a place for his bride. So it's kind of like, sounds like Revelation, right? When the place was finished, then the groom would come back and there'd be trumpets that would echo out through the town that the groom has come to get his bride, that marriage is here, that they're going to consummate, they're going to come together and be together forever. And we see this language in Revelation that God is going away. He's going to prepare a place for us. And when it's done, he's going to come back and get us. And the trumpets are going to sound and we're going to be with him forever. He's using the imagery and the illustration of marriage in that day. I, I am, uh, I'm a lover, man. I, I just am. I'm not necessarily a fighter. I've got a temper. But I promise you this. You can be friends with me and make fun of me often. That's fine. And we can poke and jab. Carlton and I were doing it in the parking lot about our hair. He made fun of my hair. I made fun of his hair. And then we laughed and hugged and it was good. Because my hair is beautiful and he's jealous. It's just what it is. But hear me. If you trash talk my wife, I'm popping you in the mouth. And I'm not asking questions. Can a pastor say that? Fire me. Christ is at his thing anyways, it doesn't matter. If you talk bad about my wife, we're not going to be okay. There's going to be a feud between us. There's going to be an anger that's going to well up inside of me that will not finish until, yes, I'll stop that there. We're, we're not going to be friends. So if we punt on the idea that the church is bad, the church is done, the church is over. We should just ignore the church. We are trash talking based on Ephesians 5. Jesus is bride. And we, we cannot think that he's going to be okay with that. We cannot imagine just as if anyone trash talks my wife, it's over. But we can trash talk the bride of Christ, the church. And expect everything to be okay. So I'm, I'm telling you, my wife and I have had many opportunities to serve in many different places. And those places are good. But we have put all in for the local church. We think the church is God's plan A and there's no plan B. If there really are, 
26,000 people. Where's the whiteboard at, man? <laughs> Sorry. Just, we normally have a whiteboard. 26,000 people within a 20-minute drive of where we are right now that don't know Jesus. The plan A for those people to know Jesus is us, the body, the church. Not a building, not a service, but us as the church. That's God's plan A. There's no plan B. And we are the bride of Christ. We cannot diminish that. So, that's just the introduction. We good? 24 minutes, that's the longest introduction I've ever done. So what does that mean for us then? What does that mean for us as the Branch Church? <clears throat> so we have this statement that I thought we might have gotten in a fistfight over trying to develop. This statement, there it is. This defines us, small level, as the Branch Church. We exist by God's glory, for God's glory, to make disciples, equipping them to know, believe, and obey Jesus as a gospel-centered community living on mission. We are the Branch Church. So over the next three to four weeks, this is what we're going to be going through. In the context of the church, the church is important, the church is the bride, what does this mean for us? Um, as we've prayed, as we've considered, as we've argued, we have come down to this one statement to describe who we are as the church. So we're going to spend the next couple weeks just breaking down the statement to make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, have you ever heard of Simon Sinek? Got him, Simon Sinek. He's got a TED Talk. He's got a couple books. Great guy. You should check him out. Um, one of his books is Start With Why. And there's a, if you like to read, read it. If you don't like to read, there's a 10-minute TED Talk that explains everything that's in a 200-page book. You can watch that instead. Um, his theory is, and I think it's a good one, that a lot of churches and a lot of companies and organizations, they know what they do. And some have figured out how they do it. But the ones that are successful know why they do it. So if you can just imagine a bullseye, the why is the center. So if you know why you do, that's going to drive how you do it. And finally, that's going to drive what it is that you do. So, and he goes through and looks at Apple, looks at the Wright brothers, all this kind of things that if we weren't already 25 minutes in, I would go into. We just don't have time. Check it out. It's a great explanation. So for us, the way that we've structured this is that we exist by God's glory, for God's glory, is the why. Now, we will be three in September. Let me just put this out there. We'll be three in September. Um, as a three-year-old, did you have everything figured out? Yes or no? I mean, chances are you're still peeing in your pants at three, right? Okay, so when people ask about, man, how's the church going? Here's, here's the common phrase I say, uh, we're almost potty trained. Uh, like we're getting to that stage. We are three. We're figuring out, I have to use the bathroom, let's go. And sometimes it looks like Grady where we're just playing and having so much fun and then it hits us, oh man, I'm going to run. I've got to go. Stop talking to me, drop everything. I'm running to the bathroom. So we're still figuring things out. So here's why I'm saying that. The longer this sentence goes on, the more that over the years we might change. And I know the staff who we don't want to hear that. It's just the truth. We might flesh this thing out differently. But the why, why we exist as a church, by God's glory and for God's glory, that will never change. How, that, that sentence, that phrase, that mindset behind that, that will never change. That we exist as the branch church by God's glory, for God's glory. The how, 
How do we do this to equip disciples or make disciples, equipping them to know, believe, and obey Jesus is the how. So what does that functionally look like, a gospel-centered community living on mission? What does that make us, the Branch Church, where Dahlonega first and every major college campus in the state of Georgia? That's where we want to get. Majored, identified by 6,000 students plus on-campus housing and some kind of um, campus morale. So whether it be Greek life, whether it be a sports program, something that keeps students there, that's the colleges that we want to go after. So what we want to do here is take this sentence, <clears throat> this run-on sentence with a bunch of commas, and put this on every major college campus in every major college town in Georgia. So what does that actually look like? And we can get into this later. But hopefully that looks like some of you guys are going to sell your things and move to Athens. That some of you guys are going to sell your things and move to Carleton, to Statesboro, to Valdosta, to Atlanta, to blah, 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 blah. All of those places. That's where we're going. But don't let me freak you out. Let's, let's take a step back. So this week, by God's glory, for God's glory. Now if you have any kind of background in church, glory is something that you've probably heard. Right? You've got this idea of what it is. I'm kind of, I'm, like I said, I turned 30 earlier this year, so I'm still reliving the glory days of when I wasn't fat and when I was cool, right? And it didn't hurt when I got out of bed. Those glory days where things were just great and, like, girls loved me. Now it's just my wife, which is fine, but, I mean, it's just, it just is. So, um, no, honey, I'm just tired. I'm just blaming that on sleep, okay? I love you. So, um, as we move on from here, we've got to start with the idea of glory. But here, here's the hard part. Explain to me a basketball. It's not too difficult, right? It's, it's round. It's got some, like, stripes going around it. Uh, it's about, like, yay big. It, it, the purpose of it is to, like, get into a hoop. Um, James Neesmith invented basketball. I don't know why that's the random fact that I remember from third grade PE, but it is. So that's what a basketball is. It's typically made out of some kind of rubber material. So I can explain to you, whether you've ever seen a basketball before, I can explain it to you, right? And then I can put out a baseball and a football and a basketball and say, now that I've explained this to you, pick out which one is a basketball. And you're probably going to be able to get it. Now explain to me beauty. Explain to me beauty. Is there a way to explain beauty to where I line three things up and say, which one is beautiful? I mean, just all cards on the table, there's art that people freak out about that I just don't get. That it draws people to tears for how beautiful it is. And I think Grady has made something that beautiful. I just, I just don't understand it. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? Or if you're in Savannah and get a shirt that says beer holder, that's pretty funny. Beauty is in the eyes of the, I'm tired, give me a break, of the beholder. What is beauty? So the same thing, when we start to talk about glory, here's what we can do. We maybe can't identify what beauty is, but we can point to it when we recognize it. So I can't express to you what beauty is so that when you leave here, you know what beauty is. But you can feel what beauty is and you point to it and go, I don't, I don't know what it is, but something about that sunset is beautiful. I don't know what it is, but something about those two people and how they love each other is beautiful. 
that I maybe can't explain it, but I know it when I see it. That is beauty. So when we're talking about glory, we have to kind of understand. The same thing we went through a couple weeks ago, we were going through Isaiah, and the seraphims were flying around and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. How can we define holiness? If God's holiness is so set apart, if we can't fathom how holy and how perfect God is, then what makes us think that we can actually put words to it? But the rest of it, holy, 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 Isaiah 6.3, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his, not holiness, but glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. So glory is the manifestation of God's holiness. So John Piper, who is a really smart dude, sums it up this way, and I, I think it's good. Um, let me just explain this one word real quick because Piper's really smart and I had to Google it, so I'm just going to assume that people have to Google. There's the word manifold in here. Here's what I know about a manifold, an exhaust manifold, right? Like a little gasket that goes into your, between your exhaust so the exhaust doesn't leak out. I don't think that's what he meant by the word manifold. Here's what he means. Manifold having many different forms or elements. Did you guys know that? Did you know that's what manifold meant? Okay, good. I don't feel that dumb. So manifold meaning having many different forms or elements. And this is how he explains it. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Manifold, again, meaning many different forms or elements. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his many perfections. So when we say, leave this up for a second, when we say that we exist by God's infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections, we exist by that and we exist for the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. That's why we exist, by God's glory and for God's glory. So this is where we're finally getting to Romans 11. You guys there? You didn't shut your Bible, did you? Romans 11, we would get there soon. Romans 11, we're going to pick it up in verse 33. I would encourage you to read uh, all of Romans. We'll really just read all the Bible too, but Romans 11 is great. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Here's what it says. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We, we just got to stop and pause there. Oh, the depths of the riches and and wisdom and the knowledge of God. Has anyone ever explained to you that way? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of Gabe. No. That, that has never been. So there, there's just another level here. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For he who has known the mind of the Lord... For he who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, verse 35, or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid. Verse 36 is where we're landing. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me read verse 36 again. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. For from him and through him, that's by God's glory, and to him 
is for God's glory. So what, what does this mean? So when we talk about defined by God's glory, by the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections, here's what we understand. Isaiah 43, 6-7 says this, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. Okay, we, we can't skip over this. That God created us for his glory. So by God's glory, we're even here. If it wasn't because of God's glory, if it wasn't because his infinite power and beauty and manifold perfections, we would not be here. So literally, we exist by God's glory. That is not an understatement. That is not an overstatement. That is the truth that we would not be here unless it's by God's glory because Isaiah 43, 7 says that he created us for his glory. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says this, that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. And love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will and to the praise of his glory of his grace to the praise of his glory. So he saved us, he designed us, he made us because of his glory, because of his infinite power and manifold wisdom. That's why he made us. So we exist literally by God's glory. That if it wasn't for his glory, we would not be here. We, we would not be in existence. So if we, if we hammered that one down, that the only reason that we are here as human beings is because of his glory, well, what about the things that I offer? If we look back at Romans, from him, but then also through him. John 15, 4 through 5 says this, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides, unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So here's what Jesus is saying. He is the vine, we are the branches. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. The last part of verse 5, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So we are created by God's glory, but even as we live, if it wasn't for the glory of God, that we could do nothing apart from him. So we literally exist by the glory of God. Now what does it look like to be for the glory of God? Here's just a simple question. If we were created on purpose, then wouldn't you say our creation is for the same purpose? If we were created by God's glory, that was his purpose, then wouldn't you naturally say that that is, what, that is for our purpose? That is where we're going. A couple of years ago, I built a table, Right? Nothing fancy, just a table that holds 12 people in our house. You know what that table's not doing today? Training for a 5K. It's, it's not doing it. You know why? Because it's, it's a table. You know what it is doing? It's, it's a table for people to sit and eat dinner at. You know why? Because that was the purpose that I created it for. I created this table for a purpose. And it acts and lives within that purpose. So if God created us by his glory, then isn't it a natural thing to say that then we live for his glory? But we can't get this paradigm shifted lest we slip into legalism. 
We can't say that. I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to do everything for him so that I can earn my way into his glory. No, we were created by his glory for his glory. C.S. Lewis, and we've said this quote numerous times. I just, I just want to make sure we bring it up one more time. Because a lot of people, if, if we exist by God's glory, sure, like you might debate that with me. But for his glory, that we exist to give him praise, to recognize that he is infinitely powerful, that his manifold perfection is why we exist, and we're constantly saying that and screaming that. Oprah Winfrey, Brad Pitt, C.S. Lewis, all of these people throughout history have said, God just sounds like an egomaniac. I can't, I can't follow him. If all he wants is glory, if all he wants is for me to praise him and recognize how good, it just sounds like an ego, it sounds like a jerk. I don't, I don't want to follow that God. He sounds selfish and someone I don't want to be like. And here's what C.S. Lewis says about that. I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people that you care for, you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. So if we understand that by God's glory that he has created us because he is good, because he has a plan, because he has a purpose for us, then the natural repercussions are that we talk about it. C.S. Lewis is saying that it's, the praise isn't full until it's expressed. We naturally talk about the things that we love. We naturally talk about the things we enjoy. Coming in here and going out of here, that's the conversation that's going to be taking place. What are you doing today? Man, I just really love disc golf, so I think I'm going to go play disc golf. What are you doing today? I really want to sleep. I love sleep. I'm going to go take a nap. That, that's what we talk about. That, so to us to say that we live for God's glory is a natural manifestation of what's going in our hearts. So 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That makes sense. That makes sense because if we understand by God's glory, then we live for God's glory. It's just a natural repercussion of by God's glory. Here, here's the greatest way to explain this. In a second, I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion. When we take communion, here's what's taking place. Because of God's glory, by God's glory, by His infinite power, manifold wisdom, His perfections, He sent Christ to die in our place. Because it's something that we cannot do by ourselves. It's something that we cannot achieve, that we are born broken, that we are born sinners, we are born apart from Christ. And he knew that. And so by his glory, he said, no, here's how I'm going to fix this. I'm going to send Christ to take your place. I'm going to send him to die on your cross. Three days he's going to defeat death. He's going to join me in heaven. But because of that, Philippians say, because of that propitiation, because of that exchange, now Christ has given you all of his righteousness. Now you are a new creation. The old gave God is gone. The new one is here. You are my son who I am well pleased. I love you. All that is done by his glory. So when we go take communion, we rip the bread which represents his body, and we dip it into the blood, or the juice that represents his blood. Here's what we're saying. 
that by God's glory, you have saved me. And I can't shut up about it. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop talking about it. I can't stop dreaming about it. That why would you, a loving God, do this for me by your glory? So the rest of my life, I'm yours. Whatever it looks like, whether I'm eating, whether I'm drinking, whatever I'm doing, I'm, I'm living for your glory because of what you first done for me. Here's what I love about Christianity. Everything is God initiating with us. There's nothing. Find me in the scripture where it's not God sent, God initiated, God pursued, God is coming after us. Again, C.S. Lewis would call it the Holy Ghost towns that he has released on us and they're chasing us down. Because of how good he is, because of his glory. So the natural repercussions are that we live for his glory. That's why we exist. That's why we exist as the branch church. So let me pray, and then we can remember that through communion. Again, if you are a believer, this means so much to us that we get to remember by his glory and be reminded to live for his glory. If you're not yet a believer, we're so grateful that you're here. Uh, but we would ask that you sit this one out um, because this is geared towards the believers. And if you want to have more conversation about that, I would love to talk to you about what that means. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Now, thank you that, that everything is done by you. There's nothing that we have done, there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, to sustain ourselves. Father, many of us have walked into this room with our tank on empty because we're trying to do everything by ourselves. God, that if you really hold everything together, and if everything really is from you, for you and to you, for your glory. God, would we rest in that? Would that become a warm blanket for us? We'd know and taste and see how good of a God you really are. God, that you're not disappointed in us. You're not upset with us because you knew what you were getting into, Father. When you sent Christ to die in our place, you knew what that meant that we are a broken people in need of a Savior. So Father, as a church, as the branch church, with those thoughts well deep inside of our hearts, that the only reason that we exist is by your glory. And you didn't mess up in creating us. You don't regret creating us. That you have a plan and a purpose. That you make no accidents. The reason that we're here and the reason that we're breathing, the reason we're here in Dahlonega in the situation that we are in is by your glory. That you are up to something. And Father, from that, from that would we rest and we walk in living for your glory. God, will we look for you in everything? God, what are you doing here? I know I was created by you and your glory. So God, would you give me opportunities to live for your glory? No matter the circumstances, no matter the situations, you did not mess up. God, would you keep us up at night thinking about your glory. 
God, would you keep us up at night? Would we start to dream and try to understand you in your infinite beauty, in your greatness of your many perfections? Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for loving us. That's in your name we pray. Amen.